0: Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash recommend today.
1: Like who's gonna lend money to jurisdictions if a big rich place like Chicago or Illinois um, can't make its can't make its obligation meet its obligations? And so these are really difficult choices. And so I have some ideas about things we could do to make the problem better, but it's worth thinking about what you would do. I mean, one of the things I found during the COVID period is there was a lot of intense arguing arguing about what the federal government should we have a state bankruptcy law um Should we offer all of this aid? Is it a blue state bailout? Is it a red state bailout? Um, And I found that the people talking about this really didn't take the time to realize how hard a set of choices were facing the government. It was just a lot of yelling.
2: It is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast a very smart man, Yale Law School professor and author of In a Bad State, Responding to State and Local Budget Crises, David Schleicher. Welcome, David. Thank you so much for having me. So congrats on this book. Um, Some people look at this and be like, what state and local budget crises? Are those a thing? Uh, And there was a period when everyone thought they were going to be a big thing uh, post-COVID where COVID shut the economies down and... Uh, I was seeing the headlines being like, hey, if the these local governments have to fire a bunch of people, you're going to have a lot more fired people. Uh, and then the feds came through in a very, very big way. Uh, the CARES Act, I think it's about $5 trillion of uh, stimulus in total, uh, hundreds of billions of which went to state and local governments. So all is okay, right? <laughs> yeah. So it's, I mean, the interest in some ways for a little while, the answer was
1: yes. So, state and local budgets have been in better shape for the last couple of years. They've been well, maybe in any point in American history, or at least uh, certainly they've been as as good. Um, between the fact that the economy never really got as bad as people expected, and particularly high end wealth, which is state and local budgets that are dependent on high end uh, income taxes and capital gains taxes, did very well, and then the utter boatloads of money that the federal government gave, state and local budgets were in really strong shape. But right now, we're seeing an end to that federal money. That money is drying up. Some of it was even pulled back in the debt limit deal. And we're seeing um, revenues starting to fall. And so you're starting to see projected budgets, budget deficits in uh, you know California and Illinois and New York and New York City. Um, uh, and what we're going to see is how many jurisdictions use the boom times to save and to fundamentally reform the budget so they'd be healthy going forward, um, and which ones uh, kind of played Brewster's millions with the money, just got it and spent it as quickly as they could.
2: Yeah, so just because you, you write up some examples... How many did this rainy day fund thing, uh, and you have an example or two, and then how many were like, screw it, this money's big, it will go forever. Let's spend, spend, spend. Well, so I mean, it's a little, again, it's a little hard to say. A lot
1: of jurisdictions save money in the rainy day funds, but the real question is, did they create liabilities going forward that's gonna be hard for them to, they're gonna be hard for them to reverse. And so you see places that, um, when you hire a bunch of new workers, it's really hard to fire them the next year, or if you cut taxes, people are going to be really unhappy about the taxes being cut going forward. And so the real problems are not merely the savings, but it's the creation of liabilities going forward. And so rainy day funds are, are pretty healthy at the moment on average across jurisdictions.
2: And yet, for whatever reason, it, it feels like there, there's another shoe to drop. Now, one of the major things that you see in headlines, and you and I are in New York, is that commercial real estate is not faring very well. Uh, Barbara Corcoran of Shark Tank, who's a real estate expert, said uh, that midtown commercial buildings are 50% occupied. And this is, uh, you know, at this point, like years after reopening, uh, my, like you might even say that this uh, mo- most major companies have already come down with various policies. Um, so it's not like 50% with a giant up arrow attached to it necessarily. I mean, it rebounded from near zero to 50%. But these buildings... Aren't viable at fifty percent occupancy.
1: No, I mean, proper, commercial property values are falling and going to keep falling, um, at least for the shorter medium term, um, and that has pretty big dramatic has pretty big implications for local government budgets in that govern downtowns. But for a couple of reasons, one is that commercial property tax rates are generally higher than residential property rate tax rates because um, offices don't vote, but people do. Um, uh, and uh, secondly, it's some disruptions, um, and it also will reduce. I mean, the working from home is result sales tax revenue because people aren't going to the office. Then you know they're not buying buying lunch or whatever. Um, and partic- maybe the governments, the type of governments that are most directly affected, are not even the ones that are direct directly taxing commercial property taxes, but are property, property but our transit agencies. Transit agencies have lost enormous amounts of revenue. Um, Through, because people just aren't riding trains because they're not commuting quite as much or the commuting rates have fallen. And while New York is bad, it's not the one that's worst off. San Francisco, the the office utilization in San Francisco is really, 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 really low. Um, And so uh, some of this will shake out over time, which is as prices fall, um, uh, um, you'll get new tenants in. Different types of tenants will emerge. Hopefully, although it, it doesn't, it's actually much harder than people think. You'll see some some residential conversions, um, but um, it's going to create pretty big uh, revenue losses in the short and medium term for cities, and maybe even longer than that.
2: Yeah. So let's press on the residential conversions. So it turns out it's very very hard to turn an office building into uh, an apartment building, uh, and some of the practical problems are plumbing. So think about your average office building; it's got uh, one restroom, two restrooms, three restrooms. And then when, when it's time to uh, put in apartments, like everyone wants a restroom. So, yeah. you know, like that, that's a big problem. There are a lot of interior spaces that might not have windows, which is a no-no um, for a lot of apartments. Kitchens, the same jam. Elevators.
1: The elevators are often not built to the same specifications that are required for residential building. You've got a lot of building code problems for residential conversions. It's just not happening. I mean, and then on top of it, um, you'd need um, a lot of zoning changes, and some in New York, you'd need some state law changes. It's office conversion, residential office conversion is really, really, really hard. It was okay in some of the older buildings downtown in New York. So, in the financial districts, those buildings were built differently than modern office buildings. Um, but, you know, it's really hard to see uh, residential conversion. A lot of the buildings, if they're going to become residential, are going to have to be knocked down.
2: Yeah, and then at that point, it's not much of a conversion. <laughs> like knock right, you no, down. No, no, you're no, like, he's, hey, he's, let's build an yeah. apartment building yeah i I have been in the downtown uh, office buildings that have been converted, and some of them are very nice, uh, but they're still also funky. Like all the dimensions are funky. (laughs) Yeah, I completely agree. It's, um, it's, uh, it's, um, it's, it's, you can see
1: people sometimes like funky. Like it's like lofts or whatever. They have a little bit of that feel to them. Um, it's something, it's like a unique space, but it is, um, it's not going to be a massive source of housing, particularly because the state and city are going to require, uh, if they ever do allow this, they're going to require a good amount of the apartments that are created to be, uh, deed restricted affordable. Um, uh, or red restricted and uh, the result will be that the the economics of it doesn't work out even if you can overcome some of the building code changes and so I don't think there's any real uh, realistic uh, opportunities for residential conversions particularly in New York in the, again in the short or medium term unless the politics changes pretty substantially
2: yeah and you mentioned San Francisco which has the these problems uh, revved up even higher perhaps I mean there there are very large office buildings. um, You're saying that their occupancy is lower than 50%, which wouldn't surprise me. No, it's much lower. Yeah, San Francisco is the lowest
1: of any downtown country.
2: So what is that, like 20, 25? Yeah, something like
1: that. I don't have the number in my hand, but it's It's really low.
2: Uh, And what's interesting is both New York and San Francisco, these buildings were premium priced before. I mean, they could command crazy uh, rents. And then now they can't rent it for any level. Uh, well i mean it's unclear whether
1: they can rent a ver so there's been some some the the price discovery has been slow in this area, and there's some reasons you might imagine something about their contracts the, the things that uh, there's been some de- lack of desire to take losses which may affect the banks and there's a couple of things going on um but it, it has been a whether they're permanently useless um or temporarily useless or just uh, in some kind of stasis due to some kind of difficulty working out contracts is a little hard to say.
2: You're right is in that we don't know what the correct price level is, and there are a lot of incentives in place for them not to rent something for a song because then everyone else in the building is like, wait, what? They're getting it for a song, and then your creditors are like, wait, what? You're renting it for that level. If you rent it at that level, you can never pay us back, uh, and, and so there are a lot of folks who are probably um, frozen in place.
1: Yeah, it's, I mean, it's all, the problem is in some ways pretty similar to the problem we've seen in New York for a while about, um, about uh, retail vacancies, which is like retail space is really expensive in New York. Why was it the case that there were so many retail vacancies even before COVID? And the answer was like there were a lot of difficulties with contracts and pricing in the way that you describe. And so it's, a, uh, it's, a, it's a, we, we might need legal interventions of other sorts to encourage the market to shake out a little better.
2: Yeah, the average uh, retail lease is probably something like four or five years, um, and a a lot of folks aren't able to make that kind of commitment. This will have some effect
1: on uh, commercial property tax revenue going forward, which will be a big problem. And places like New York are obviously very dependent on commercial property taxes, but so are almost all downtowns. Um, and you're seeing, you know, differential problems across jurisdictions. You know, office, office uptake in southern jurisdictions is much higher than it is in, uh, in New York and San Francisco. But it's a problem everywhere. that You're seeing decline in commercial property values. And that is particularly a fiscal problem because they're generally taxed at higher rates.
2: This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now... Seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine is a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com/yang. That's helixsleep.com/yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. So you can see uh, problems developing, uh, and your book goes through city and state failures, I suppose. I was going to say bankruptcies uh, or financial struggles. Though a lot of them didn't hit bankruptcy, which you also go into. Um, so you describe it as a trilemma. Uh, by the way, is that a real word? or Did you coin that? No, 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 no. trilemma is a word that, whether
1: it's a real world, is a in, in real world is an interesting question. It was um, famously coined, famously, I say it's famous like this is Taylor Swift or something, um, by two economists, Mundell and Fleming, um, to refer to uh, trade-offs in the context of, uh, of, of exchange rates. And Danny Roderick has revived it to think about international democracy and financial flows. And so it's been used in other places. But the basic idea I offer is that if the federal government sees a state or city in fiscal distress, it has three or, things it would look. Like. Yeah, let, sorry, let's sorry. take
2: a real example. So let's say Detroit, which I spent about a lot of time in, um, is running out of money circa 2013 because of a bunch of pension liabilities and other things. I mean, their tax base, uh, you know, got decimated, et cetera, et cetera. So then, what the heck do we do? Continue? Right. So the federal government
1: has basically three choices. It can offer a bailout, and offering a bailout would help both. Detroit's ability to borrow going forward and help avoid austerity right now, which would be bad for the economy, because these things would generally happen during recessions, um, but would create what we call moral hazard, which is that both Detroit's government and other governments might grow to ex- and, and really importantly lenders to those governments you might expect the federal government to come to their aid every time there's a problem. You could do um, you could force austerity, force them to sell absolutely everything, cut services to the bone. Um, and doing that would avoid moral hazard and would encourage future lending, but would come at the cost of social services to people right now and also real economic harm because you'd be firing people during a recession. And then finally, the other thing is you could encourage default or bankruptcy, Um, and doing that would um, avoid moral hazard from lending and would avoid the worst of austerity, but would discourage future investment. And why is discouraging future investment bad? Well, we rely on states and cities to build all infrastructure. Um, state, federal government is a, is a, is a player in infrastructure, but it's a, a minor player, particularly when you take into consideration maintenance and operations costs. Um, and defaults are, are difficult for that, because who wants to lend money if they're going to lose money? And so the federal government faces this real trade-off. Well, what are you going to do about a, a problem like Detroit? Um, and over the course of American history, we've done different things. So in the case of Detroit, there was both kind of a mix of austerity and default through the bankruptcy process. But in probably the most famous of all of these instances, Alexander Hamilton's plan to assume state debts. Well, that's just a pure bailout, right? So states had a lot of debts. They were having trouble paying. The federal government just took their debts. Um, and so that was a pure bailout. And it had the effect of creating moral hazard. That is to say, British and Dutch lenders going forward thought that the federal government would always cover state debts. In fact, they thought it after. So the state, a bunch of states default in the 1840s and then another bunch default in the 1870s. But the British still thought that this was something the federal government would cover. So when the British owed money to the federal U.S. government in after World War I, they tried to have those debts offset by money def- Arkansas had defaulted, which is kind of a funny um, little story. So in some situations, we've done bailouts. Some situations, we've done defaults, as I mentioned. Um, And in a lot of situations, we've done austerity. And we've kind of varied these policies over time because they're all bad. There's no, like, one silver bullet answer to what to do about a problem like Detroit or to do about a problem like New York City in the 1970s or to do about a problem like Arkansas, who defaults in the 1840s, 1870s, and 1930s. It's just a series of difficult choices, and you need to figure out how to um, make the choices less bad and how to avoid the problem going forward. So I say in the book that the, one of the central principles about dealing with state and local debt crisis is what I call the War Games Principle, after the movie War Games. The, uh, the movie War Games ends with a computer realizing that thermonuclear It's a funny game. Uh, the only way to win is not to play. And the best thing the federal government can do with respect to states and cities is come up with ways to state and city fiscal problems, is to encourage them to be responsible... Um, through uh, incentives and we can talk about how they might do so and and also to come up with ways to minimize the harms of those of those defaults
2: yeah so another real life example I like to keep it concrete for people because uh, th- this this stuff's going to get real uh, in a hurry so another one's Puerto Rico which I've spent a, a lot of time in and uh, Puerto Rico is not a state um, so it doesn't have some protections that states have, have had uh, and, and so it it did not get bailed out. They essentially got pushed into bankruptcy.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Congress created. A, it was initially. Its it states and cities were found that they were ineligible for bankruptcy. So Congress had, by the Supreme Court, so Congress had to create a whole new bankruptcy law. Effectively, they didn't call it bankruptcy, but they. Uh, um, it was. It was. It was the same. Same. Same rules as we apply to things like Detroit, um, for Puerto Rico, and this had real effects, right? So lots of people lent money to Detroit. Some of them did so at, well after it was clear that Detroit was, um, uh, I mean, sorry, that Puerto Rico was um, uh, not going to be able to pay. There was some real uh, financial...
2: There, there was like financial there. alchemy is like, you know what, I'm going to lend these guys money and then I'm going to get uh, it back. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> was, was, you know mean, I mean? The I think the, my, the, my favorite of it is that the
1: um, in Detroit, one of their last big borrowings, um, they were well beyond their legal limits for what they could borrow. And so they came up with this jury rig scheme that um, used the, some of the same legal tools that Enron used, kind of as Enron declined, um, uh, and they were they their special purpose vehicles and all of this weirdo stuff, and um, it was pretty obviously uh, not good, but uh, the, the big municipal bond publication, the bond buyer, gave it Midwest Deal of the Year. Uh, after they did all this, the, the mayor, who would be the mayor of Detroit, went to jail, but not for that. So it's one of those things.
2: Yeah, so so there there are, and I remember in Puerto Rico, there were just people taking bets, essentially, or, uh, and saying like, well, you know, I think this debt's going to get repriced at this, I'll buy it at this, and mm-hmm. then then they exerted political pressure to try and get um, their, their money back.
1: And again, that's been happening forever. So in Hamilton's uh, plan to assume state debts, one of the arguments against it was that the then equivalent of what we can now call vulture funds had bought up a lot of the debt. And then when the debt gets, debt gets paid at 100 cents in on the dollar, they bought the debt well below that. And the same thing happened in Puerto Rico. So again, these are long American stories, um, uh, but it certainly happened in Puerto Rico. And so Puerto Rico got a bankruptcy rule, and several interesting things happened. So I'm a big fan of legal bankruptcy processes for jurisdictions, um, but they, um, there's, it raises some really difficult questions about like how much can you expect a government to cut before you allow it to default? And similarly, how do you treat different classes of debtors? Do you treat pensioners and bondholders the same way? And so these are really contested issues. And one of the things I like about a legal process is it puts some constraint on um, uh, kind of the sheer realpolitik of the pensioners and bondholders fighting for political attention, that there's at least someone who is at least somewhat removed from the situation, ensuring that the treatment is not too unfair.
2: Uh, so you open your book uh, with a hypothetical about um, Chicago and Illinois becoming insolvent, and then the hashtags, which I guess you made up, is like uh, "Chicago Way" uh, was was one. Uh, Illinois is over, I think was the other. Yeah, um, yeah, a, a little
1: corny, maybe, but it's yes. The no, idea well is well man. They seem great. there you go, nice there work. you go. It's a, it's you're, you're the social media expert. No, it's a, um, it's the idea to force you to think about what it is you would do if you were either a voter in this situation politicians were doing something, or if you were a politician facing these questions. And they're really difficult choices, right? So if you bail them out, you know, I say a senator from Texas says you absolutely can't bail them out, that would create um, that would create a belief in both Chicago and other jurisdictions that they're going to get money forever. And everyone will, at the bond market will lend money to these governments, for any, any government, no matter what form it takes, forever because they know they'll get bailed out. On the other hand, like, uh, you could imagine being like, well, cutting all the jobs there or raising taxes will lead to people leaving the jurisdiction, and that's bad, and it will cause a decline in Chicago, one of our great important cities, um, uh, crime will go up. Social services will go down. That's bad. And then if they default, well, like who's going to lend money to jurisdictions if a big rich place like Chicago or Illinois um, can't make its can't make its obligation meet its obligations? And so these are really difficult choices. And so I have some ideas about things we could do to make the problem better. But it's worth thinking about what you would do because. Um, I mean, one of the things I found during the COVID period is there was a lot of intense arguing arguing about what the federal government should be have a state bankruptcy law, Um, should we offer all of this aid, is it a blue state bailout, is it a red state bailout, Um, and I found that the people talking about this really didn't take the time to realize how hard a set of choices were facing the government, it was just a lot of yelling.
2: that's expressvpncom slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more. So what's fascinating is I remember pre-COVID in the run-up, you look at cities like New York and Chicago, and, and it felt like they were on top of the world. Uh, and then it, it seems like things have very, very quickly turned around in a particular way. Uh, I, I will say, like, it's pretty clear that these uh, downtowns and uh, commercial office buildings are going to take many years to recover if they do recover, uh, that if you just expect everyone to come back because – office culture has changed. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. like you ask workers what, what they want to do and uniformly they're like, hey, I, like, I, I love work from home. Maybe I'll hybrid it up and like come in if you force me to, that sort of thing. Uh, and, and employers right now are beholden uh, to, to their uh, people. And, you know, you can judge that in a particular way. I, I certainly know that if you were a representative of the city, you'd be rooting for everyone to come back in, in full force. Um, but it's also true that a lot of even city employees, like you know, are like, "What am I doing in, the, in this freaking office building?" So you're, you're seeing, in many ways, the value prop of the city um, get changed and, and called into question. There've been winners and losers to this. Um, certainly, some of the winners have been these uh, sunbelt areas uh, where they have lower uh, tax rates and people can just decamp to um, in in various ways. So you're you're going to see many cities struggle uh, and the the danger is that there is like a like a negative spiral that develops it's like well okay my tax revenues go down so i'm going to cut services and then people are like wait what am i doing here if like you know like the the trash isn't get it picked up or whatnot
1: two things i think that's really it's all it's all really really smart um places like new york have a because demand is so high to live there even with a de- relative decline um uh, that new york could still attract people right if they allowed more housing to be built like housing in new york is still very expensive and so if they allowed more housing to be built, there would still be people who want to live in new york it's not so clear that's true for um some other downtowns but for new york and for for new york you're seeing like there's still i mean look at the price of apartments they're they're they've decreased they've they've not increased as much as outlying areas but the prices are still really high and that suggests there's still demand to live in new york um but it's certainly less that less. I mean, the what what people call the donut effect around cities has become true, which is that the outlying areas have gotten more expensive relative to the inlying areas, and this is uh, because people want home offices. There's increased demand for housing. People don't want roommates as much, um, and uh, you know, and people can work from home, and so it's both having inter-regional effects and then in regional effects, but like the areas in Connecticut and even further. Are doing very well, um, and so that's one story. Another story is that um, it, in some ways we should expect this to uh, create a little more interlocal inequality. So one of the things that was constraining people from just mo- rich people to just moving near other rich people is um, into small town is that they had to commute. You know, you still had to go to totally. the office, um, and to the extent you can just go to Vale or go to you know wherever um that Palm beach is Palm Beach right um that we might expect to see greater interlo- in, uh, interlocal inequality the last thing I'll say about this that I think that you're kind of pointing towards with the end of your comments is uh, this one is that it puts a lot more pressure on cities to um, do better if people have more residential choice even if they have their hybrid, bridge they can they have greater ability to commute further um it makes cities have to compete along a different dimension, which is they have to make it nice to live there. And so New York is great to live in. I love living in New York. But on the other hand, there's garbage on the streets everywhere. Um, and in a more competitive atmosphere, uh, you, you're going to have to solve some of those problems. Um, you see the kind of cost of this, uh, you know, the, the kind of heavy street disorder in San Francisco, I think, or L.A., being like a really dramatic instance of, The kind of thing that uh, greater exit pressure should will punish. Um, And so uh, hopefully we can get uh, people to focus on cities in their kind of, you know, to make them more competitive uh, as places to live and places to enjoy and not just places to commute to.
2: So you wrote a piece that was published in The Atlantic recently that I enjoyed immensely, and it ends by saying, hey, we don't really pay that much attention to what's going on in local government, so uh, maybe we should, because it's going to become more important. Yeah, I mean, so the evidence on this is really, really, really dramatic
1: and really interesting. So over the last, say, increasing over the last 50 years, but particularly in the last 10 and 20 years, um, voters have paid less and less attention to um, particularly legislative elections at the state and local level. So the evidence of this is that the level of um, split ticket voting, or the degree to which people vote for one, the kind of correlation between people's presidential voting and state legislative voting, has now reached so much like it's like in the high nineties of percentage that almost no one votes for a different party. It's all for tribal now.
2: It's not like hey, I like this person, I like that person. So yeah, I, right. I like this team.
1: And it's it's I mean and everyone also thinks that it's driven by the national so it's not like people are like I dislike my state legislature and therefore I'm gonna punish President Biden it's the going the other way around and this is a pr- really 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 negative Big effect problem. because it it's not clear that anything that happens in the state legislature actually matters to who wins elections right so it's this people. I mean, People in state legislature could do whatever, and it's just not clear that it has much effect on who wins elections. And so what does matter in those, in those, um, in, in those bodies is what the beliefs of either the extremely unrepresentative primary voters and or groups uh, who are kind of influenced uh, politics in other ways. And so that has a couple of really negative effects. One is that obviously the policies are less representative. But a second thing is that it results in uh, almost certainly results in, in, in more spending. Um, And less taxing, let's say, like, less fiscal responsibility, um, because the people who are participating in these elections are what political scientists call intense policy demanders. Well, why would you pay attention? Because you want something, or you want to stop something. Um, and the result of that is that the is that elections are these um, uh, elections and local elections are pretty unrepresentative and result in you know like less than attractive outcomes. Um, and that you can see this across policy areas. So like, what is NIMBYism in housing? Well, it, one of the reasons we see it is that. Um, the people who show up in city council primaries are a deeply unrepresentative swath of voters who are mostly um, homeowners or people with like strong strong local interests, um, and they don't represent the broader public and the broader public's interest in growth. And similarly, the groups who ask for things and participate and do endorsements in these areas can be, you know, everything from you know groups wanting money, a local public local employee public employee unions, all sorts of people who. It's perfectly fine for them to want to be involved in politics, but the absence of mass politics at the local, state and local level, that is to say, or giving tools to ordinary people to voice their preferences through competitive elections, is um, a tragedy both for our budgets and for policy.
2: Yeah, you have a quote from the book that I enjoyed. It said, that is, state and local officials do not seek and do not receive a public mandate from ordinary voters. What? They are instead responsive to narrow and unrepresentative groups of voters and interests. Uh, and that's what you just described.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, you live this. And so I don't need to tell you, but I, we can talk to the audience. You know, it's, it's that what it is a um, uh, when you start thinking about who how one gets elected to county commissioner or state legislator, it just doesn't have very much to do with a, doing a good job in office and getting rewarded for it. And in one of the ironies, of course, is that national politics, you know, works much more like that. And so it is the case that we, as voters, generally know what Republicans and Democrats are all about. And like, it's like, you know which party is pro-abortion and which party is anti-abortion. It's pretty easy to do. Um, and so you can punish bad economic results. And there's um, some evidence, there's evidence of that. Oh, that has actually been waning a little bit, but it's it's still a real effect. And we see this for new incumbent New York City mayors. Is the one, like, so when you have executive officers, it's a little easier for voters to kind of turn them into brands themselves. And so there's evidence that when crime rates go up, mayoral popularity goes down in New York City. Um, but when crime rates go up, people don't punish their city council members, but city council members have a lot of influence on these policies. And so when um, transportation doesn't work, people don't punish their state legislators, even though state legislators are the ones deciding how to fund the MTA or about policies about the MTA. And we, like... Uh, political reform at the state and local level is really, really, really important. It's important for these budgetary concerns because, again, the lack of mass control re- results systematically in less responsible budgeting. But it's responsible for it's a big problem for lots of other policy areas as well. It's um it's just we're in a deeply unhealthy time for state and local democracy, and this is driven by a couple of forces. One is the decline of local media. Yeah. Um. um uh, and there's some really amazing findings on this, like um. When a local paper closes, the borrowing costs for the jurisdictions that it covers goes up. because They literally lenders... get worse interest rates because they're like, yeah, I don't really care. <laughs> yeah, because right, right, if you're lending to government, you're like, oh, God, these officials are going to be super corrupt. No one's paying attention. Why am I going to lend the money? Um, and you see split ticket voting falls. And so that's a real problem. But a lot of the problem is in voters themselves. That is to say... Um, these, fo- like why isn't there more local media? Well, some of it is technological, but some of it is that we are addicted to um, you know the entertainment value of politics, and national politics can be a little more entertaining. Um, and so it's incumbent upon people with a megaphone and be- to remind people that these local things have a big effect on their lives.
0: For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's Lifetime Membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash rs10 today.
2: Yeah, the the death of whatever it is now, 3,000 newspapers, I mean, that that really hurts because how the heck are you going to pay attention to what's going on locally if no one's covering it? Yeah, no, I mean,
1: it's interesting. I was talking to this, these people about this idea they had to use AI to uh, to build local papers out. And, like, to, I, I don't know whether it's a good idea or a bad idea, but it is, um, it's at least responsive to, like, a real need to, like, tell people what's happening. To the happening. Void, the
2: vacuum. Yeah, there's a real the vacuum. vacuum. Right, I'll, like, I'll tell you a story about a local city councilman who uh, attended meetings, and there was a reporter there, and everyone had their back straight and uh, were buttoned up. And then the reporter just stopped coming, probably because they lost their job. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and, then, and then everyone started, I mean, I shouldn't laugh, I mean, it's was But terrible. And then everyone just started acting completely differently because it's like, well, the, you know, like the observer's not in the room and they can just let one oh, no. hang out.
1: It is, it, is, it, is, it is really one of the worst things that's happened to American democracy.
2: I'm a big fan of something in Congress called the Local Journalism Sustainability Act that would shore up. Uh, the ability for local papers to exist and compete. Uh, last I checked, it had six sponsors, which means it's, <laughs> you know, a couple hundred away. But, but that thing just confuses the heck out of me because like red and blue, it's like, you don't want a local paper. You, you have the sense almost that there are folks that's like, you know, I kind of prefer operating in a journalism-free zone. Yeah, I mean, you certainly see that, but you understand why politicians
1: might want that, right? So a politician might want to be in a journalism-free zone because then no one's watching them. And so once they achieve a cumbed effect, then they'll be fine. They can, you know, uh, do ads and whatever. In New York, we have some green shoots on this front. So, um, I mean, I'm a big fan of the city, the newspaper, um, which is a non Yeah, non-profit. we have some,
2: some uh, you know, it's, I mean, it's like a massive market. So you have some very admirable local journalism efforts.
1: Yeah, and so in Connecticut, where I work, I um there's a a really wonderful nonprofit called the CT Mirror that does probably the best budget reporting of any state government, state state paper in the country I mean, it's not even a paper it's an online product but again these the audiences for these things are pretty small people the the old trick of media was that people would um you know, pick it up for the sports and for the classified ads and then get the politics by kind of osmosis from it and now even now like even our people when people do get papers like they're getting the new york times they're, they're, you know, the new york times has cut its local coverage really dramatically um, uh, and so they're not getting that. They're they may be focusing on Ukraine. They may be focusing on Wordle. Yeah,
2: but, but they're didn't not have focused. Like Metro reporting the Metro desk like the number of journalists in, uh, assigned to that? Yeah, no, it's it's, it is it is it is it is wild to me how little. I mean, it just you know it's a it's a it's
1: how little given. I mean, The Times particularly is such a financially successful product and such a successful product of course, that like they don't feel a little bit more noblesse oblige to cover New York more um, is. Is is you know pretty shocking.
2: Well, so uh, I just wanted to hit this a, a little bit more. So, the the for profit model of journalism um, was invented you know when people figured out it's like yeah hey, I can print these things I can put ads on it da 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 it lasted until Craigslist so it lasted a long time. I think that this should be seen as a, a public good and have uh, more public funding, public private partnerships treated as a nonprofit. Uh, there are a lot of markets that could sustain a break even paper that was well run. It just can't. Get stock market type returns, and what what's happened was that the remaining local papers got gobbled up by various uh, financial players, private equity funds, and hedge funds, and then just got stripped down. Uh, and And you know, and then you just, again don't have any local reporting. I mean, we have a lot of unbelievably rich people
1: in America, and being a newspaper magnate, even if it was a non profitable newspaper magnate, is a um, great way to achieve like, social renown and influence. And so it's always been curious to me that you don't see more of this, that, like, people are happy to give hundreds of millions of dollars to put their name on Lincoln Center or put their name on a public building or put university. But, like, in terms of affecting both, like, for good and also for ego, like, running a newspaper seems to me to be, like, the one of the best things you could do.
2: Well, well uh, I mean, you have seen... Various billionaires pick up publications, uh, but they're more national. To your point, yeah, they do. Bezos buying the Washington Post, uh, Benioff buying Time, um, things like that. On the other hand, I think that
1: there are other things we could imagine doing, um, in addition to helping local media, which again I I support, I support as well. um, uh, In terms of uh, kind of making some legal changes to encourage uh, uh, kind of local party formation. Um, so one thing I've always liked is the idea of, first of all, two things. One is giving mayors and governors more power relative to legislators because we have some idea who they are, whereas we don't know who the local legislator is, so we don't know who's on the city council. Um, a lot of the thing worries we have are, it's like the mayor's out of control, they can be checked by other layers of government, um, and so stronger mayors seem to me to be in a really attractive solution. Another thing might be to kind of Try to create what I call local party brands in some work, where the mayor has either the power or maybe even the responsibility to endorse candidates for city council on the ballot, so you can vote for so your New York. You could vote for the Adams slate or the anti-Adams slate the next time you vote for city council, um, and that that would be a way of bringing democracy into these, um, uh, into these, into these elections. Um, and you could even imagine doing that at the primary level as well.
2: I like it. Uh, it. it- it's the case that 75% of the country now um, is governed by one party or the other, uh, where you, know, you imagine it's a you know, two-party system. It's, it's not really for most people, uh, where you have Democrats running things, uh, all branches of government here in New York, and then you go to a place like Missouri to just be the reverse – uh, and it's one reason why I agree with you about this local party formation, is that if you can get more of, of that, because the minority party in a lot of these places is something of a non-factor.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually a really interesting thing. Like One question you might ask is, like, why doesn't the local party, the local minority party rebrand itself to be different from the national party to become more competitive? So it's like, why is it that... The Republicans in New York and the Democrats in Missouri are just, like, kind of consent to failure by adopting unpopular positions. So, like, you're not going to win elections in Missouri if you are broadly pro-choice. It's just not where the voters are. And so, and, and, and similar, the opposite is true in New York. Um, and there are two real problems with this. One is that even where they do rebrand themselves on policy, it's not clear that voters care. So the Massachusetts Republican Party uh, in surveys seem to be pretty close to the median voter. Certainly Governor Baker, who had been a Republican in Massachusetts, was a very popular governor. Um, It's not clear voters paid any attention one way or the other. Democrats have controlled the Massachusetts legislature for more than 100 years. But secondly, those parties are governed through internal democracy that makes them pretty unresponsive to the voters. So who's choosing their candidates? Well, it's primary voters who are themselves definitionally in the local minority, um, and so that's pretty un- a pretty unhealthy. Uh, you can again, you can see break from this with executives, so Baker or your New York example, your Bloomberg's and Giuliani's, or Giuliani before. Oh, um, there, uh, there
2: is. So I'm part of an effort trying to do what you just described um, in California. Uh, it's called the Common Sense Party of California, and uh, it's meant to be a counterweight and a choice to the Democrats because it's as bad not to have any competition, uh, so. I mean, the good thing
1: about doing it in California is that you have the top two primary system. Yep. So it's, um, they've, it's they've electorally made it, made it possible to do so. Now, it's obviously gonna be a huge challenge, right? So voters still associate the Democrats very positively associated with the Democrats. So what you really wanna be is like all Democrats. Or moderate Democrat, or whatever it is. I will you know, say like, that
2: there's some frustration with the the Dems in California. <laughs> so, oh, oh, oh no for sure. I mean, California is going to, to. Mean, <laughs> have some huge budget problems going forward, also. You know, um, um, but
1: it's, it's it's definitely the case that they still win all the elections, right? So there's some frustration. But
2: um, yeah, no, it's a it's an uphill climb. I mean, I'll actually give you the numbers, so it'll be fun. So um, we need seventy three thousand people to sign up uh, to get party recognition in California, and we're at thirty two thousand now. Um, so any Californians listening to this, check out CACommonsense.org. Um, but, but that, but that is one of the paths you described.
1: Yeah, you can just run. I mean, this is the thing is they can be Democrats even. So we see one of the things you see in New York is this idea of called fusion where two parties endorse the same candidate and in, in New York, it actually doesn't work very well. It doesn't really mean anything. People doesn't don't get a lot of information from knowing that someone's endorsed by the, Working Families Party. Or Working Families, it doesn't actually provide too much information. My, There used to be one called the Marijuana Green Party, which is now, again, at the time was a fringe party, and now is a super majoritarian party. I don't even know. The real question is how to create a differentiated brand in voters' mind that people will understand that they're part of the National Democrats in for New York or in Missouri, the opposite, I'm not being specific. Um, but at the same time, you're providing them with information this is part of a different group, a faction inside the parties.
2: I mean, what we're doing with Ford is an attempt to introduce competition and along the way, the, the lines you describe, um, which is fascinating. So you referenced it earlier, but I just want to flesh it out a tiny bit. So that you detail in your book that there are incentives for a lot of these local legislators to overspend. You know, they're not exactly great at tightening the belt.
1: Yeah, I mean, so this is a normal thing about politicians, they're
2: preying on our
1: weakness as voters, right? So if you're a politician, who wants to bear costs if you think that you can spend money right now, get popular, cut taxes right now, get popular? Or, or, or
2: here, they- here's the, the one that really has hurt us, David, but it's, you, know, it, you, you understand it. Pension obligations. It's like who really wants to stand on the other side of it and be like, you know what, I'm going like to cut all your pensions, uh, you know, even though you've, you've been doing this work for uh, 30 years and you're a sympathetic group.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, so this is the thing, and, and this is part of negotiations. Workers have, uh, public workers have re- have accepted a lack of raises in the short run, which sort of the government's need to, uh, in return for these long-run obligations. And the reason that politicians like giving pensions relative to giving raises is that, again, they're kicking the can down the road. And we, as a legal matter, so states have what are called state, we often call state fiscal constitutions, balanced budget rules and limits on debt issuance. Um, But we don't treat pension obligations as debt for the purposes of those state constitutional obligations. But pension obligations are just debt, right? So you have to pay them. There's a constitutional requirement to pay them. um, And so, but we treat them as preference for the purpose of our legal regime, even if we, they're just debt. And this is really, really a huge problem. So in the post-2008 period, jurisdictions had this huge state and local government, this huge, huge fiscal problems. And they hid them, a lot of them, in underfunded underfunding their pensions. And what did this mean? Well, a lot of the, state's borrowing capacity, that is, say the willingness people had to lend them money, was given away to the underfunded pensions. And the period after 2008, when interest rates were low and unemployment was high, should have been this period of this grand infra- infrastructural innovation. Like, that's when you build infrastructures, when, inf- inf- when interest rates are low and when there are available workers. And look back on that period, look at your city, and say, where is my grand infrastructure? In New York City, we got three subway stops along the 2nd Avenue subway, that's what we got. We didn't get, you know, other places in the world we got these amazing innovations and we just didn't get it because jurisdictions weren't budgeting responsibly and then were are hiding their irresponsibility in pension obligations.
2: I can't imagine elected officials doing such a thing, David, I'm kidding. <laughs> so, 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 um, so you painted a really compelling picture Um, and the book ends trying to summarize, look, when the shit hits the fan and some of these places are going to run into problems and you and I have walked through some of the reasons why some of these places are going to run into problems. Uh, you know, you have kicking obligations down, down the road, you have overlying on federal aid. That's a one-time thing. Uh, you might have your commercial, uh, tax base uh, erode. Uh, you know, some people might be voting with their feet in various ways. So then, shit starts getting dark. Uh, and then you have to make the big choice among the three options, uh, and you lay out some of the the principles for what one should do. So the three choices to review, good fun, is bailout, austerity. Or default, and I, I'm going to like just give you my, my personal outlook on this. Is that I remember when things were going bad, and I spent time in Detroit when they were declaring bankruptcy. Uh, they were they were doing some things where you're like, wow, it's rough. Like they, they have an art collection, uh, and they had to sell it to try and meet their obligations. And at the last minute, one of the local philanthropists came in and, and bought it because they were about to like you know have their art museum <laughs> looted. I mean, it's, it's pretty, you know, and you could look at it and be like, well, you know, art, art not so bad, but like there there, there are other things. Um, when you're in a rough time, um, uh, it, it seems like firing more people uh, is not the best move. Um, you know, like you, you don't want to add fuel to a bad fire, um, so, so, so to speak. I totally understand the moral hazard issue because it's like everyone's just like, hey, let, let's just spend, spend, spend. And then anytime we get into trouble, it's like the bailout comes. Um, uh, and so it feels like, the, um, managed process <laughs> of like a quasi bankruptcy default, um, uh, is like a middle of the road move. The problem then is that lenders get sad and say, you know what, I'm not going to give you guys as much <laughs> as, as much money. Uh, now I, I like that. That strikes me as the least problematic just in the sense that, um, like there are a lot of problems why we have a hard time building, um, a, and, uh, I'm sure financing is one issue, but it doesn't strike me as the main issue. It seems like the main issue is around like the o- overregulation, the layers, the complexity, the the capture, the corruption, probably, uh, you know, like that that's attendant. So anyway, th- that that those are my two cents on the big three of uh, of de- of bailout, austerity, and default. So
1: I mean, I think my. Preferences take two forms on this. I mean, so again, I, in the book, I think the, the situation will depend. So it'll depend a little yep. bit which one you prefer. Okay. Um, uh, um, and so I don't give like a, a single one answer to rule them all type type uh, type of answer. But I think that what you can do is adopt uh, balanced solutions, and then you can add conditions to some of your support that help avoid problems going forward, and so what do I mean by balanced solutions? So things like bankruptcy, but also things like giving federal aid to both states and cities at the same time um, can result in um, a little default, a little, a little austerity, and a little moral hazard, and that that has, the, the fact that they're small amounts rather than large amounts, you know, there's kind of declining marginal harms. And so in the Detroit instance, the as you note, the philanthropist came through, is was called the Grand Bargain, after bankruptcy they came through with a bunch of money to support the art museum but the state which had been kind of holding out and and not been super friendly to detroit also gave a lot of money in matching the philanthropist money but they did it after bankruptcy had been declared and the result was it didn't create too much moral hazard because who would want to go through bankruptcy just to get federal aid that's crazy or state aid that's, that's crazy <laughs> yeah, yeah. On, on, on the other hand it mitigated the harms of the bankruptcy so that, Pensioners just didn't do that badly between the philanthropist aid and the state aid. Um, They would have done even better if the federal government had offered a little bit too, as President Obama wanted to do. And so this kind of balanced approach is attractive. The other thing I think is really attractive is that the federal government is going to give money. And realistically, it has given in the last two big crises, particularly during COVID, it gave an enormous amount of money. It should attach some conditions to that money in order to encourage states to do a little better. And so what do I mean? If the federal money had said, you can get this federal money, or you can get other streams of federal money. The state, federal government is giving states and cities money all the time. Um, in return, though, you have to budget in accordance with uh, GAAP, with uh, generally accepted accounting principles, or you have to accept what Connecticut put into its bond, a covenant into its bond, which are like, a volatility cap. It put a couple covenants, but one was about, vol- which is that if you're getting a one time amount of money, you have to save a certain percentage of it. And the conditionality, Um, can help you avoid the problems going forward. So take advantage of the fact that you're doing something you'd rather not do, which is this aid, um, in return to get some conditionality. And so that has two nice effects. One is that the conditions hopefully are good themselves, but secondly, the conditions are painful. And so it makes taking aid less pleasant than it might otherwise be. It's not a free lunch. Um, And so one of the things, I mean, so the federal aid during COVID to states and cities was almost certainly too large it was, you know, it certainly has helped to kick off inflation.
2: They took a fire than. hose out. They just went, and like, you know, I, I yeah. got it. And, now, you're saying, been, hey, at least it could but, have been a conditional fire hose. <laughs> it could have been a conditional And it probably should have been, you know, like less of a fire hose less, and more less of a super yeah, gotcha. soaker.
1: But, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, but one of the interesting things is that one of the reasons it was so big was because they were trying to avoid the moral hazard problems. So because the, they give it to everywhere. Every place. But not every place had a fiscal problem, but they just gave money to everybody. Um, and the um, that helps reduce moral hazard because you're not rewarding a jurisdiction Bad for behavior. Being, you're just right. like, you
2: exist, here you go. But you are just splashing
1: out the cash. Um, and of course, the jurisdictions that are in fiscal trouble care about it more, so it still creates some moral hazard. Anyway, the. Um, they could have done more with this. And they had time to do it, not in CARES, but in ARP. They really did have a chance to, like, think this through a little bit better, as far as I'm concerned. Um, so those are the principles, which is, I think they should attempt the federal government when it's facing one of these prices You're going to bear, make a bad choice. It's going to be a choice that's painful. But you can build things into it to make it... A balanced bad choice—that is, to say, just a little bad across a number of dimensions—and you can use it to create situations such that we are um, more—we're um, uh, le- less likely to see these problems going forward. And the last thing I'll say is that we could probably build the federal system to be a little more resilient against crises. So two ways we can make it a little more resilient. And one is is we could um, encourage places to make it a little easier to move in and out. And so that would have the effect. So right now, when a jurisdiction faces a fiscal crisis, all the rich people leave, but all the poor people can't leave um, because, you know... um, uh, housing costs in other places are too high. Um, and so it'd make it a little easier to move around the country, and I have some ideas about how to do that. Um, but a second thing is to, um, sometimes cap codes as a left-wing idea, and sometimes it codes as a right-wing idea, but I'll, you know, it's, um, which is, uh, we could s- uh, remove from states some responsibility for some of our cooperative federal programs in return for giving them full control over some other things. Um, and so, uh, the big one is like one of the big problems of state cuts or state and local cuts during um, during fiscal crises or during recessions is Medicaid. The states and governments co fund Medicaid. Um, and states have to cut because they have to keep a balanced budget during downturns. Um, but that's just when everyone wants Medicaid, right? So Medicaid is in demand when the economy is bad. And the federal government can bear that cost across the business cycle, but it's a lot harder for a state or city.
2: Well, we know the next crisis will come, and when it does come, I hope that uh, people mind your book, In a Bad State, Responding to State and Local Budget Crises. You know what the big takeaway here, David, is? Uh, get involved in local politics, pay attention, because those things matter, and uh, some more competition would uh, would benefit us all.
1: I'm 100% with you there. Um, thank you so much for having me. This was really fun.
2: Thank you, David. It was a blast, and uh, keep being smart. <laughs> <laughs>